Our text today is Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 35. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your word. Lord, we pray that you open our hearts and our minds to what we are about to study today. Uh, Allow it to seep deep into us, Lord, to rid us of anxiety and worry, and to lift us up in joy and righteousness that only come through faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I was really worried about this sermon. I only got one laugh. I was really worried about this sermon. There we go. That's a couple more laughs. That's not true. But worry is something that I have been an expert in participating in. At one point in my life, if I had known what spiritual gifts were then, I might have told you that worry was a spiritual gift of mine. There was this book called The Worst Case Survival Handbook. It was basically a handbook of all the worst cases and then how to survive them. I actually lived that book out in my head for years. I could come up with a worst-case scenario for basically any situation that I happen to be in. Maybe you have felt the same. Maybe you've come up with worst-case scenarios. Maybe you have been anxious and worrisome before. What you may not know, and you guys know that I love words, is that the word worry comes from a German word, and that word means to strangle or choke something. And that's exactly what worry is. It is the mental and psychological strangulation and choking of something. And because there's nothing new under the sun, worry is also nothing that is particularly new. Did you know that anxiety disorders are the number one mental health issue in America right now? Nothing is new under the sun. Does that surprise you? Because it shouldn't. as, As we have, as a culture, moved farther and farther away from the truth of God, we've fallen deeper into worry and anxiety. Just let that sink in. If we remove God, we increase worry and anxiety. There are over 40 million adults that suffer from anxiety. That's 18 years and older. That's probably a low number. That is 12% of the population of America. That's 40 million adults. Now, if we add kids into that, if we add people under age 18, the best guess is it turns out to be 31% of Americans suffer from some type of worry or some type of anxiety. That's a quarter. That's insane. 
Now, I was in this category for a very long part of my life. Worry and anxiety dominated my life, especially when it came to money. Which is why today's passage is so fitting for me personally, and I hope that it is for you as well. Let's look at verse 25 again. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body not more than clothing? Grab them. Good, thank you. <laughs> I was when they come up, when he comes up, all I can think is he might have a ministry future for him in the future. That's... He's like, oh, that's the place I'd like to be. We can train him up. We talked about that last night at the outpost. But, so, (laughs) that verse again, since we said, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? You see, it's, it's easy and it's kind of funny to me to see how quickly we skip over certain words, especially in Scripture. You all know that I love words and find them important. The word that seems to be skipped over a lot in this particular passage is the word, therefore. And, and this word is an important word because it is a transition word. It is making a transition from what we read last week into what we read this week. Last week we spoke about money, how you can't be serving two masters. You either serve God or you serve mammon. You can't be a slave to both things. And we know that we are slaves to some thing because everybody worships something. So if we're not worshiping God, we're going to worship something in the place of God. And in a lot of cases, that thing ends up being money. That was a particular sin that I dealt with for a very long time. And it's especially true in a culture where wealth and money equal status and prestige. So that's why this word therefore is such an important word. Because it ties together what Jesus just said with what he is about to say. He tells us not to be anxious, not to worry about our lives, don't worry about what we're going to eat or drink, not about our physical body and the clothes that we are going to wear. And why? Well, he asks this next part rhetorically and sarcastically. It is a shame that we have missed the satire and the sarcasm and the rhetoric that exists in the Bible. He asks this part rhetorically because he says to these believers that he's speaking to, is not life more than clothes? Is it not more than these things that you're so worried about? They knew and we know that it's not. But the challenge is we all know that, but we don't treat it as such. And it's funny for me, especially in my experience, especially when you think about where so much of our worry and so much of our anxiety comes from. When we worship money and when we worship possessions... It isn't that we're not even worried at that point about food and clothes. We're worried about status and prosperity. What we wear, what we drive, where we live, what brand new clothes we wear, because there is nothing new under the sun. All of these things say something about us to the outside world, don't they? I know that most of you have been to our home. We live in a very nice and a very comfortable suburban home. It's built in the 60s. It's a single-story ranch. It's about 1,100 square feet. It is nothing fancy by 2022 American standards, but it is a lovely urban home, and it is probably considerably bigger than most homes that most people have in other parts of the world. We sit on a quarter acre. We have a small urban farm. We have goats. You guys all know the goats. But there are many people in the world with larger families than us that live in smaller spaces. And I bring this point up about my home because... 
The type of house that I used to have, or the type of house that I have, used to be a defining thing for me. I used to live in a much larger house. It was a modern home. It had Cat5 cable wired into every room, and there were no hard edges. All the corners were curved, and there were fancy little awning ways, and we had a postage stamp of a backyard. But the rooms were far apart enough that you really didn't have to interact with each other if you didn't want to. And I loved it. Not because it was a home, because it wasn't, but because I, I felt like I could brag about where I lived, about how fancy the place and the neighborhood and the streets that I lived on. But it was funny because what makes this funny to me is I received this experience on the opposite side a couple months ago. Garen and I were meeting together for dinner for a session meeting, and we both happened to see a coworker who used to work for me sitting off at the restaurant across the way. We were in Littleton. So I said, do you think that's so-and-so? And Garen said, yeah, I think that's so-and-so. So I went over to go say hello. Hadn't seen this person in well over a decade. He and his family were there. It was nice to reconnect. And I just mentioned to him, I was like, do you still live in that house in Bomar? Which is kind of the, the upscale, fancy neighborhood next to us. And he said, oh, yeah, we, we live on this. I said, oh, yeah, you live on such and such street. Oh, no, no, no. That's Bomar South. We moved to Bomar. But what was he doing? He was letting me know of his status. He was letting me know that he no longer lived in the houses that were farther away from the lake. Those are the south houses. We now live in, in Bomar proper. But it was an interesting experience for me to see this on the outside because I was him for a really long time, saying those same kind of things. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I live over here, those cross streets. You know, you know those big houses over there, don't you? Ha, ha, ha. It became so important to me to be defined by status. It is so important for people to be defined by status. And what does that actually show us? It shows us a lack of trust in God, a lack of faith in the things that will be provided. So because like Jesus retorted back to his followers, he says, isn't life more than, than food and the body more than clothing? Isn't it more than the big house that you live in? Isn't it more than the status that you're trying to portray? Of course it is. We all know this. Let me expand. Start with food, verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor, they, nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? You see, Jesus begins his examples to help crush our anxiety. We're talking about birds. Birds, they're small, they're hollow, they might not even be real. That's a joke. There's a website, birds aren't real. It's kind of funny. If you want to see how, it's a segue, I always segue, but it, it shows the power of how you can play with people's minds on the internet because this might come as a shock to you. Not everything on the internet is true. I once saw a meme and it had Abraham Lincoln on it and it said, don't believe everything you read on the internet, in quotes, Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> birds are real though. But birds, they're small, they're hollow. There's usually not a lot of meat on them. They lack college educations. They lack verbal skills. They can't even pick up coconuts unless they tied one together with a piece of string. It's a Monty Python reference for any of you who like old movies. But they are pretty fun to watch at the bird feeder. They have a bird feeder that hangs out right outside the bay window uh, at the house, and we watch birds all the time. But if you think about it, compared to humans, they are creatures that are relatively insignificant. If we compare them to what they are able to go do. So much so that most of us don't even really notice the birds when they're around. They're just part of the background of our world. 
So what Jesus does is he uses birds, these small kind of insignificant things that we don't even pay attention to all that much, and he, he uses the example to remind that these birds aren't out there like saving up in their barns. Oh, winter's coming, I better, better fill the grain silo full of grain. He's reminding us that birds didn't go out and create industry and food savers. I bought a food saver this week. I'm pretty excited about it. Food savers to keep foods for extended periods of time. They don't gather and store. And yet, they're still here. Year after year. Season after season. The birds are still alive and they're still flying around, gathering seeds and living in their nests and going about their birdly business. Making noise, woodpecking the side of homes early in the morning in the summer. Or the cheeseburger bird, the Rocky Mountain chickadee, which sounds like cheeseburger. If you don't believe me, wait till March. And then go outside. And you're going to remember that I gave a sermon in November. And you're going to hear this burden. Cheeseburger. It's a true story. That's how we know that it's coming to be spring in our house. Is the cheeseburger bird starts singing in the back. But they live without worry. You don't see birds like having a meeting. Maybe that's what they're doing on the power lines. (laughs) Birds aren't having a meeting talking about their stress, worrying about where the food is going to come from. They live without worry because God provides for them. So Jesus is making a statement. If God provides for the birds who were not created in his image, then why should we worry about being provided for? Because we know that we are more meaningful than the birds. And family Remind us again, we spoke about this last week or the week before, we literally live in the most abundant time in the history of ever. The most prosperous time in the history of ever. We have more food accessible in the world than we have ever had ever in the history of ever. But it wasn't this way in the first century. Regular access to food and drink is not like it is now. If, if we're driving down the street, headed off to, to help Kurt later this afternoon, and the kids need some water, I can stop at one of like 30 places and get some water if we didn't bring any in the car. That wasn't the way. There wasn't a 7-Eleven in Jerusalem. It would be open 24-6, though. Because <laughs> they still believed in the Sabbath. But there wasn't a 7-Eleven on the corner for guys to go out and get a bottle of water or get, get something to drink or get something to eat. So the example is fitting, especially for the first century, where things like food and drink and the immediate access of that might have been a lot harder to find. That's why I I use that example at the beginning, talking about some of these other things like homes and and the other pieces that cause us worrying and anxiety. Because in our minds, we can be be worrying and, and we can have anxiety about things that are even less important than things like food, drink, and clothing, which we know that God will provide for us. See, he provides for the birds, he will provide for us, and and God has provided for us in some of the most amazing ways, and not just in food. We shouldn't forget that. So I'm going to skip verse 27, but I am going to come back to it. There's a method. So 28 and 29, why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So, So he tells us about food. The birds don't worry about it, and he's going to provide for us. So then he moves on to this example about clothing. And then he asks this rhetorical question, another sarcastic ask, why are you anxious about clothing? Look at the lilies. Your flowers don't toil for their work. They don't wake up in the flowers in the morning like, we need to spin ourselves some new petals. 
These ones are getting a little bit old and uh, sunburnt and they lack color any longer. Even Solomon, who was one of the richest men alive in all of his glory, was not nearly as pretty as the lilies on the ground. You have to really think about the imagery that he's using. You have to really think about the beautiful imagery that God uses in the Bible. We live in such a beautiful place, in such an incredible creation. Most of you have probably gone at some point to watch the trees change in the fall. Or maybe you live in the place where you get to experience the trees changing in the fall. Have you ever been in a place where you look at a field full of flowers and you gasp in its beauty, the array of color, the beauty of the creation that is laid before you? What about a well-manicured lawn? We have a guy in our neighborhood, that man loves his lawn. Could be an idol. It's okay. It's, it's not okay, but it's okay for me to look at because I like looking at it. But he has this incredibly well-manicured lawn. Think about it. That, that, the beautiful feeling under your toes, the gorgeous green, the smell, the smell of the grass. What about tulips? I love tulips. Love, love, love tulips. Or roses. Kathy, you grow rose bushes, and your bushes are beautiful, and they're full of color, and they provide these, these gorgeous flowers that show up here at church on Sunday mornings. See, not even the flashiest king, not even the, the richest YouTuber, boo, or actor, or politician, or billionaire, can hold a candle to the beauty of the world that God has created for us to experience right outside these doors. It's everywhere. You should literally take a moment to stop and smell the roses. You can do it right over there before we're done. He says in verse 30, But if God so closes the gra- clothes the grasses, grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Grass dies, flowers die, seasons change. You see, God's creation exists in this perfect rhythm of seasons. Kristen shares a story with me about her dad, and her dad from Austria would come over the states and he would panic in the winter because the grass was dying she's like it's okay it renews it's spring it'll be fine he's like but it's dead but it won't be forever it's this perfectly timed rhythm of seasons but not only that after these beautiful things after they die what do we do with them We use them for secondary purposes. We use it for kindling in the fire. Or if you were a woman in the first century, maybe you needed to bake some bread a little bit faster. So you'd you'd take grass and things and throw it under or in the oven to get it even hotter so you could cook quicker. Or maybe you you need that grass and the sticks and, and the leftovers to keep you warm in the winter. All its radiance glory, and then we just take it and we burn it, secondary purposes, because that's because the beauty of God's creation doesn't have to just serve one purpose. Things in this world that we have been given dominion over can serve multiple purpose, and it was here, put here purposefully. So if God is willing to clothe the beauty of the world and care for it and sustain it each and every day, and then we're going to use it and enjoy it and also burn it later and use it in a different manner, why are we so worried about what we are going to wear? And then Jesus tells them, really shut up, you have little faith. Like, you're worried about this. You're you're worried because you're not trusting in my provision for you. You're worried because you don't believe I'm actually going to give you the things that you need. Maybe not what you want, but what you need. See, when we're obsessed with the latest fashions, it causes people anxiety. 
because they're not trusting in God's provision. People in the first century had like a tunic and a coat. And they definitely had a coat, even if they didn't have a tunic, because the coat was going to keep you warm. Now in the morning, it's like, what should I wear? I don't know. I wore that yesterday. I wore that last week. What will people think? What will people think if I went? Nobody cares. What's clothing actually for? What's the purpose of the clothing that you're supposed to wear? Now it's turned into a status symbol. The shoes you wear, the pants you wear, the shirt you wear, say something about you. It's another segue. But there's got to be some dead marketing guy just laughing that he convinced people to wear shirts with company logos on them. Now, I'm going to charge you $70 for a t-shirt that says Gucci on it so other people know that you can afford a $70 t-shirt that says Gucci on it, that does the exact same thing as the $9 t-shirt you could get somewhere else, alas. But you can see where the worry comes from. You can see how people start to worry and freak out about things where Jesus is like, you know I'm going to provide. I provide for the grass, I provide for the lilies. You even burn that stuff. You of little faith, stop worrying. Because what happens when we're worrying about these things, what it's really showing us is where our discontent is. So now let's go back to verse 27. I told you I'd get there. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? This is a statement I wish that I had tattooed on my forehead for about a decade and a half. When I was deep in worry and deep in anxiety, and most of it was wrapped around money, I was this huge ball of stress, like ulcer-inducing, not-sleeping ball of stress. I was living so far outside of my means. I was so attached to worldly things and prestige that it basically just kept me in a constant worry cycle. I worried about everything. I worried myself sick, literally sick. I would go sleep in the car. When you and I worked together, I would go sleep in the car in the middle of the day because I hadn't slept the night before because I had been so stressed out about being broke or, or whatever the current particular thing that was going on that I was worried about. But then what would I do? I'd come back in the office and I'd go back about life and I'd put a big smiling face on my, you know, put my smiling face on and just pretend like everything was really great. Man, Craig's so happy all the time. Well, I was like dying on the inside of stress and anxiety. I used to worry so much about the bank account that I would check it multiple times per day. Nothing changed. I was still just as broke at the end of the day as I had been at the beginning of the day. But I would. I would compulsively log into the bank and click it. That's still the same. And then two hours later, I'd log in the bank account and click it. Still the same. And do you know what changed? Nothing. Nothing changes. Literally nothing. It's like a rocking chair getting you to nowhere. It's like a treadmill. You run, 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 you run. And you're still in the exact same place you started. You're just a bunch more, t- you're just tired. I'm still just as cash strapped at the end of the day as I was at the beginning of the day. Worrying about money added zero pennies to my bank account. But it's also bigger. Did you know there's actual health issues with worrying? Charles Mayo, who the Mayo Clinic you may have heard of, He said this about worry. He said, worry affects the circulation, the heart, the glands, and the whole nervous system. I have never met a man or known a man to die of overwork, but I have known a lot who die of worry. That's true. Because worry is a lack of trust, which means worry equals stress. 
and family, stress is bad for you. Do you know what the leading cause of death in America is? It's not COVID. It's heart disease. That's exactly right. High blood pressure, which is directly correlated to stress, read worry, is a leading cause of heart disease. You don't have to connect the dots too far to figure out that not only is worry bad for you spiritually, but worry is really bad for you physically as well. Worry can kill you in every single way. It can kill your spiritual life and it can destroy your physical life. It surely cannot add one extra moment to your life. And the good news is for that is God's already preordained the days and the years of your life to begin with. Psalm 37, 23, 24. The steps of man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong for the Lord upholds his hand. So worry's bad for your spiritual life. Worry's bad for your physical life. God's already decided the days that you have. So you really shouldn't be worried about that because you can't extend any anyways. These are really timely, important words for us to hear right now. Because we have this culture that is obsessed with extending our lives. We saw that over the last two years. We saw that in churches who are supposed to believe in the promise of the life eternal, freaking out about trying to extend their lives. So much so that bodies and caring for our bodies has become an idol for many people. There are people that are obsessed with diets and exercise because they think it's going to keep them alive as long as possible. I may have already used this illustration, but I'm going to use it again. I have a friend, an old friend, worked with years ago. Her dad was an airport manager uh, up in Wyoming. He was a retired colonel. He was a marathon runner. He was literally the most in-shape dude. And he was out for a jog one morning. He was retired running this airport. He was out for a jog one morning and fell over dead. Boom, heart attack. He did everything right by the standards of the world. He ate all the right foods. He exercised exactly the right way. And he still died. Now, if that diet and exercise doesn't work, there's always the option of cryogenically freezing yourself. You wait, you laugh at that now. I've got something I'm going to say about that in a little bit, and then you're really going to laugh. The point is, not that diet and exercise are bad. God gave you a body to care for appropriately. But they shouldn't be your idol, and they shouldn't be your God. Because there's only one life extension plan that actually works, and that is God's life extension plan. It's the forever plan. It's the plan that is only provided through faith in Jesus. Because how can worrying about your health, worrying about your life, add any time to it? It can't. Same with your bank account, same with your job, basically anything. The worry doesn't help you get anywhere. The anxiety doesn't help you get anywhere. Verses 31 and 32. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He simply says, just don't be anxious. Don't say, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Because the Gentiles say these things. And you have to remember that he's speaking here predominantly to people that are believers. He's reminding them and us of the difference between believers 
and Gentiles. He's reminding us that the Gentiles are in this constant state of worry about where their food comes from and where their clothes come from, where their drink comes from, because they don't have Jesus. Their things, their stuff is their God. It's their possessions. Now, in the first century, there were also pagans that believed in multiple gods, the one God that would bring rain and the God that would bring fire and the God that would, I don't even know. But they had a God for all of the things as well. It's no different in 2022. We have many gods with a small g. We have gods of education, gods of industry, gods of entertainment. You can't forget the god of FOMO, the fear of missing out. God of exercise. We can go on and on and on. The god of video games. What about the god of social media? I have not told you yet today to cancel your social media accounts, which you should, because it's bad for health and it creates worry and anxiety and stress. So get off social media. People feel inadequate when they spend time in these places. It's not just kids, it's adults. They scroll and they look at these other people's lives, caricatures of people's lives. Like, ah, my life's not good like that. What do we need to do? I need to earn more money. I need to get a bigger house. I need this. I need better clothes. I need to eat at better restaurants. Clothing trends have started on social media, causing worrying anxiety. How am I going to get the new? There's like a sneaker thing. The kid, oh, I gotta have these fancy sneakers and they gotta be all white and they can't get dirty ever and I, I have to wear them so that everybody else knows that I can have the fancy sneakers so they know that I'm of a high enough status to have those sneakers. So then they get worry and anxiety about how am I gonna even get it? I'm broke, but I wanna look like that I'm not broke. When I worked in Arizona, I worked in Snobsdale, I mean Scottsdale, and when I worked in Scottsdale, we used to joke about the $30,000 millionaire that's all these kids that make 30 grand a year, but 14 of them live in a house together so they can afford the BMW that they share. It's the same thing. Worrying about how they're going to pay their bills, but they want everybody externally to see them drive the fancy car so they know. We had folks at our house last week, and the kids were glued. These particular kids were with us. They're grow, you know, almost grown kids. were glued to their cell phones. And I realized, a little bit of hypocritical, I'm glued to mine. I rationalize it because I read the Bible and a lot of Kindle books on it, but I do know I need to separate more. But I peeked over, and they were scrolling clothes, just designer clothes after designer clothes after designer clothes for like two hours. What's that going to do? It's just going to cause worry and anxiety. Because their world, this world, the cultural world, the Gentile world is all about the newest fad. If you don't play or look like or do, you're not cool. How will you ever get anywhere in life if you don't have these things? becomes the center of these people's affection. It becomes their God, and it will cause them worry. It will cause them anxiety if it hasn't already. This is what the Gentiles do. They spend their time investing in worldly things, trying to extend every pleasure, every moment, because in their mind, whether it's conscious or subconscious, they believe this is all there is. So I got to get it all done right now. What's the term people say? You only live once. We see this all over the place. My office mate at the airport just bought a $274,000 Ferrari. My first two houses didn't cost that much combined. That's not the case now. Inflation's crazy. So why would you buy a $274,000 car? Now, I'm not telling you it's an ugly car. It's a beautifully crafted machine. But it's because your hope and your trust is laid up in this world. It's laid up in the idea that you better do it all before you can die. You better have it so people know that you can do it. It's a status symbol. It causes worry. It causes anxiety. 
I live like that for a long time. The problem, and if you remember we talked about appetites last week, the problem is that appetite can never be satisfied because you know you're going to ultimately die. So enough is never truly enough. You're always seeking, you're always worrying, you're always trying to get the next big thing, the better vacation, the better steak dinner, the nicer clothing. I will have reached the pinnacle of when? Verse 32. For the Gentiles seek all these, after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. The Gentiles seek after them. They seek. Because they seek, they worry. But our Father in heaven knows that we need them. He knows you need food. He knows you need drink. He knows you need clothing. So he will provide. He will provide. This is a longer segue, but it's important. Chris and I chat usually after the kids go to bed, so it's pretty late. But we sit and she drinks tea and I'll have a little glass of whiskey or wine or water, whatever, depending what's going on the next morning. And then we chat about like, what I've been reading and studying or what happened during the day, just you know, normal life stuff. So I've been reading and thinking and praying and meditating a lot this last week on the promises of God. And, and specifically around how we, the big we, don't always act like we actually believe them. We, we treat God like he's limited. We treat him like, for example, there are people he can't forgive. I'm going to talk about forgiveness on the outpost this coming Saturday night. I am recording those now too, so if you don't come, you'll be able to hear it. Or we treat him like there are things that he's incapable of actually doing, like actually fulfilling the whole of the Great Commission. Well, I mean, you can't expect everybody... And it's worth, we, 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 when we don't believe in the promises that God has made to us, but still claim to believe in God, we're hypocrites. That's worth repeating. If we don't actively believe, act like we believe, actually believe in the promises that God has made to us, but then still claim to believe in God, we're acting like hypocrites. It's no different to Jesus saying to us, ye of little faith. King James stuck in my brain, ye of little faith, you of little faith. You know what I mean. God is not limited by anything. Satan can't beat God. The world can't beat God. Tyrants can't beat God. Pastors can't beat God. COVID can't beat God because God is God. He's the great I am. He's the one that creates and sustains everything. He makes the flowers pretty colors. He brings the air that we breathe. Even the birds of the air, they are flying and they are eating. The, my bees in the backyard, all of these things are created for and sustained by God. The grass, God. The flowers, God. The sun, God. You get the idea, right? God sustains everything. The whole concept of space and time, God. So if the all-knowing, all-loving, all-caring God makes us a promise, what should we do? We should listen. We should believe what he says. If he promises to take care of us, if he promises to give us what we need, it may not look like what you want, but if he promises to give us what we need, then you know what he's going to do? He's going to give you what you need. What Chris and I were talking about is that the church needs to start acting like it believes in the promises of God. And I'm not talking like some, now all you got to do is give me 1995 and it's going to be yours. Look how much God has blessed me with my mansion and my jet. Joel Osteen is not a pastor. Prosperity gospel is not prosperity. I'm talking about the real promises of God. 
the ones that say that he knows what we need and that he will provide for us. We have to get out of our own way. We have to get out of pride. We have to get out of envy, which is tied directly to pride. We have to stop being so thick-headed. We have to be stops being so hard-hearted. We have to stop being selfish. We have to be humble. We have to have our eyes open to the real things that God gives us instead of demanding that he give us what we want and then throwing little adult temper tantrums or big ones when he doesn't give us what we think we deserve. That vending machine idea. I did like 10 good things. Krista met a guy the other day. He's like, I try to do three good things a day. And I was like, ah, what's he do after the third one? He's like, well, time to be a giant jerk. I got my three done. <laughs> the point is, we are called to live in contentment with what God provides us. When you live in contentment, you are accepting that what you have is exactly what you need, and worry and anxiety separate. Because contentment is the sign of trust. God knows what we need. He will always provide for us, even if it isn't what we want. When we are content, we are grateful, excuse me, and we are trusting. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God knows what you need, so don't worry. So instead, what your job to do is seek first the kingdom of righteousness. And then guess what happens to you? All of these things will be added to you. Seek and work for God's kingdom, and God will provide. The imperative, the, the command, the imperative Greek word is seek. To seek God's kingdom. Seeking implies striving for. It implies investigating. It implies learning, studying. Seeking implies work must be done implies that you must do something. Now, every time I tell you that there's work to be done, I also remind you that your salvation is not works-based. It is through faith in Jesus alone. You cannot earn your way into heaven. There are not enough good deeds for you to be, for God's like, ah, excellent. You did the 15th good deed. That was the one that was going to get you access to heaven. That's not it. But when we are in faith, our works do change, that process of sanctification. So how we work for God's kingdom, how we seek it, those are the fruits of our faith. And like we talked about last week, our appetites show where our affections are. Our affections show what we worship. God tells us how he's made us. He has told us where, that we are made to worship. He tells us that we are made to seek. He tells us we will worship, we will seek. It's built into the fabric of how we are designed. It's unescapable. Sometimes it can even feel bleak. But see, God never leaves us there. He gives us instruction. He gives us guidelines. He gives us the way, the truth, which leads us to the life. And I am living proof of this. My life right here, right now, is living proof of God's provision. I shouldn't be here. If you had met me 10 years ago, you would have really believed I shouldn't be here. I am the last person that ever, ever expected to be standing here sharing God's word. But see, God continues to be gracious and he continues to provide. My life doesn't look like anything I expected it to when I was 18, let alone when I was 30. And it definitely doesn't look like anything I expected to when I was wrapped up in this, this desire and need to control my life and its outcomes, even death itself. I promised that I was going to make you laugh. I had a membership in the cryogenically freezing place. That's a true story. I was like, that's it. I'm going to freeze my body. I'm going to live forever. This is going to work out great dumb decisions. I don't think it would work. Yeah, it's a true story. But see, then God cuts deep in my heart, and he cuts so deep that he became the ultimate desire of all my affections. 
and then everything else in my life changed. I wasn't worried about money and clothing and food and drink and my house. I wasn't anxious about, those, anxious about those things. I became content. I became grateful for where God had me in this place, in this time. I was no longer yearning for what I didn't have, envious of what my neighbor had. But instead, I had gratitude for the incredible blessings that I do have. I have so much more than so many people. I've been so blessed over and over again by a Lord that is graciously good, even in the times of my greatest unbelief. He continued to bless me. What it did was it allowed me to see through the lens of the Bible that I have exactly what I'm supposed to have and I am exactly where I am supposed to be because God has ordained it as such. It helped me understand the words that Paul said in Philippians 4.11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things. It's the promises of God. I can do all things, not some things, not three things, not 15 things, all things through him who strengthens me, Jesus Christ. I can do all things through him because I believe that his promises are true, that I believe that scripture is true. And that's why I can, and I hope that you can, lean into the last verse of text we have today, verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Why are you worried about tomorrow? It's not even here yet. And, this might be a surprise, probably not for most of you, you're not even in charge of tomorrow anyways. None of you can control tomorrow at all. You can't control the sun rising. You can't control the sun setting. You can't control any event that will take place tomorrow. You could do every single thing right, and you could get hit by a bus. You could do every single thing wrong. I don't gamble, but you could win the lottery. You are not in control of tomorrow. The only person who knows what's going to happen tomorrow is God. And so your job, our job, my job is to trust him. That the all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing, the God who is the great I am, loves you and cares for you and will give you what you need. Lamentations 3, 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. His love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new each morning. Great is his faithfulness. It's not a cop-out of doing appropriate things for the future. Don't be stupid. Don't eat 57 Big Macs in a day. Probably don't even eat one. It's not good for you. It's not even real food. It was made by science. Don't rot your brain with television and the internet. But do save for your kids' kids. Do invest in God's kingdom. Do care for your body in healthy and sustaining ways. Do spend your time investing in people. Do be responsible with the clothes that you wear and the food that you buy. Do spend your time and your resources seeking the kingdom of God. Family, we all experience worry and anxiety because we live in a fallen world. All of us will experience these things, but it's not the place we have to live in. Jesus has provided us paths out of these places. He's provided us a path out of a place of worrying about how we're going to provide because he promises us that he will give us what we need. 
He reminds us that he cares for us, that we are his children, that we, are in, we, we have the rights to his inheritance. He loves us so much that he promises us these things. He gives us an example of how we are to provide the inheritance for our children and their children's children. So let tomorrow worry about itself. Stay focused here, now, on the present. Time is short. Time is so short. We all know that. Even if you live to 100 years, 100 years is a blink of an eye in history. So let tomorrow worry about itself. Stay focused on the present. Stay focused on what you're called to do. To seek the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. To seek righteousness that can only come through faith in Jesus. And then most importantly, you are to live joyously as you do this. We are called to be people of joy, so let's live like the promises of God are true because they are. Let's live like the word of God is true because it is. And then we get to say, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And we get to leave this place and go out into the world as peaceful, joyful soldiers for Christ's kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that it strengthens all of us this week as we leave this place and we go about the world and we interact with people, believers and Gentiles, as we are a light upon a hill. And we know, Lord, that there are moments where we all experience worry and anxiety. So, Lord, we pray when we come to those places that we can be reminded of your truths, that we can, we can remind ourselves that you will provide us exactly what we need, even if it isn't what we want that you love us and that you care for us, that this creation was made for us, that we serve a purpose in it. Lord, may our hearts always seek your righteousness. May we always be filled with your love. And we be, may we be the most joyful people alive. All this we pray in your mighty name. Amen.